Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 14th of March. It's Pi Day. <laughs> 3.14. I didn't even think <laughs> Did about that. Well, that. It's not something that I actually think about quite a lot, but I, I woke up and I checked and my phone said, it's Pi Day. And I was like, oh, it's Pi Day. And then I looked at the New York Times cooking app and then they're like, what to cook on Pi Day? And I was like, oh, it's Pi Day. Anyway, that's how my morning went. Um, yeah. How are you, how are you two do, doing? I'm here with Andy and Tammy. Uh, pretty good. Yeah. Things are getting better, I feel like, or weather's getting better. Vaccine news slightly improving everywhere, I guess. Yeah, we had like a record of almost four and a half million vaccines on Saturday for one day. Oh, and wow. so that's great, you know, and it seems like the, I think 62% of people over the age of 65 have gotten at least one of their shots or maybe are fully vaccinated. And then that means that the death rate and everything is dropping. But we're going to talk about COVID a little bit more at the end of the show. Um, at the beginning of the show, I wanted to ask you something. Did you read this article? I hate when I do these sort of, uh, you know, like hypothetical <laughs> things where it's like, obviously you've read the article, <laughs> but there was an article this morning in the New York Times by uh, our friend Seth Berkman, who is a journalist who has written about Korea, who, um, you know, he's a very nice guy, very thoughtful guy, good reporter. And it was about subway and k-dramas which is something that was discussed on our discord's korean drama channel and um, just how ubiquitous subway logo is in these dramas and so seth gets into it a bit and um i don't know it was it was it was interesting to me because it it, it i didn't realize that in korea these shows don't have any commercial breaks right and so they have to jam pack all of these uh dramas with as much product placement as <laughs> As, as as it can like possibly stand, which uh, if you've seen any, I don't know, like Itaewon class, right? Like they have shots of soju all the time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> like every fridge is filled up perfectly, you know? It's like when you go into like a, remember on Cribs on MTV when people would open their fridges right. and it would be like, nobody's fridge actually looks like that. Like, Here we have With that. all the labels turned. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's um, why so many k-dramas are like restaurant shows because it's really easy to put food yeah placement. yeah i'm sure they engineer them to be able to put in product placement right mm -hmm. so it is kind of hard with these historic ones like kingdom or whatever <laughs> to put in like <laughs> product placement mercedes in a 17th yeah, exactly. century show. you have like all these so like good. dudes in hanboks with like swords and then suddenly someone's like oh has anyone had a pizza hut pizza today like you can't you can't do it so maybe maybe that's why so many of them are you know a little bit more modern and about business and stuff like that because uh it fills mm -hmm. it in a little bit better but um yeah i don't know seth i thought that was interesting I, do you notice it tammy when you watch these and andy i know that that your wife watches a lot of k-dramas as well like, do you <laughs> notice the product placement because i really hadn't which i think says something about me maybe yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i think like the i i was like i was, feel like i see more like brand ones and like product ones rather than like the subway setting like I guess it was so naturalized that I didn't notice how many of them have dates at Subway. Do you, yeah, do you notice the specific brands when you watch? Or are you just like, this is um, a generic? Yeah, a little bit. I'm trying to remember. Like, I, I think I've seen some, like, definitely like sports, like athletic brands, like Nike mm. type stuff. And then, yeah, like this Hoju that you guys mentioned, like food products. But the Subway yeah. thing, now that 
he's written about it. I'm like, oh, right. Because he cites a bunch of them in the piece that I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah. Yeah. There's this funny paragraph where they say, according to an unofficial count by the New York Times, 17 <laughs> Korean dramas have had Subway in it. And I was like, I was trying to think about how they would be doing this unofficial count. You know, it's like, do they have some poor researcher like watching, like fast forwarding through all of these? Or did they oh all God. just get like the five biggest K drama fans in the NYT Slack yeah. together and just have them, have them list them? Like both, That's hilarious. both are probably very effective ways. And one of them is much less labor intensive. So I hope it's the second yeah. option. Oh um, my god, I love that. I'm just picturing like a 22-year-old intern like in a dark room watching like know, 400 hours of drama. I know. He's like, it's I've like never watched these shows. 10 televisions on. Yeah, once. exactly. <laughs> just looking for the green and yellow. Yeah, at the end they quit and they start a very profitable and popular K-drama blog because they literally <laughs> Yeah, everything. pretty They're much. Like, well, how did you do this? Well, you know, like there was this article that I had to fact check and, you know, I had to watch <laughs> it all of it. It was the beginning. Um, I, uh, I don't know. That's, uh, I, there's also another conversation that, you know, it sort of is parallel to another conversation that I thought was interesting, which was that, um, and this is something that was talked about in discord, which is that, you know, the Korean drama thing is interesting because it is such, it's so ubiquitous at this point in a way that I don't think anyone really expected even five years ago. And that a lot of that is because of Netflix, right? Netflix promotes mm -hmm. these shows pretty heavily. Do they? I can't tell because I think what has happened on my Netflix profile is that because I've watched a few of these, Netflix somehow assumes that I'm Korean. And, you know, there's a period where I was like kind of offended by this. Like, oh, so if someone watches one <laughs> Korean drama, then suddenly they're Korean. And then I was like, oh, wait, but I am Korean. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, they're fucking right. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it it does seem like this unparalleled time, but um, someone in the chat did ask something that I thought was pretty salient. I wanted to ask you, Andy, uh, you know, China specialist and Tammy Korea expert, um, you know, and the question was what happens inevitably? And I think it will happen when Korea's music industry starts to fade, right? What in Asia replaces K-pop? What do you think? Hmm. I don't know if Chinese pop is going to replace it. You're right. That's the question. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably not the best person to ask because I'm very uh, not in touch with pop culture. I find out about these, what's popular, like much later. Um, the thing is, like with Chinese Chinese pop and Chinese uh, entertainment, they don't. They already have a domestic market. <laughs> I don't know if they need to export the yeah. same way Korea does. And this kind of mirrors like the actual economics of these countries, right? Well, you don't think they would want to just for you know out of some sense of nationalism or belief in soft power or anything like that it might be a thing where yeah maybe to um as they try to expand their investment into the rest of the world maybe they'll like uh you know produce entertainment that is a sort of yeah like a soft like an olive branch or something like maybe like a drama about benevolent Chinese capitalist in Zambia or something, you know, like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's really Sudan. subtle. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, or it's about like an oil rig in South Sudan. Yeah, yeah. and the relationships that were made on along uh, the yeah. way, exactly. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. To the extent that they're using culture as a soft power projection, I don't know if that yet. But if they did, it would. It would kind of like what's the word like square the circle or like finish finish like the the cycle in which you know Japan started this and then Korea 
saw what Japan did and wanted to do it even even larger and bigger. Um, and then China, well, like I just imagine if China did it, you know, with their resources and their their the size of their country. But um, I don't know. Right now, it seems like. I mean, this is actually the other thing I was thinking about with regards to that subway article is like, there's a way in which the interesting thing is that these restaurants in America that we kind of think of as crappy are like classy and good, right? In East Asia, right? Like, and the classic example is like 7-Eleven, right? Which is like, we kind of think of as like a crappy convenience store here, but like in Japan, it's like this huge phenomenon to the point where 7-Eleven Japan actually bought America's 7-Eleven. And so all the 7-Elevens in East Asia are really great, like supermarkets, basically. And that's because Japan 7-Eleven overtook and made this great thing. And then um, this other drugstore or convenience store called Lawson used to be like in Boston, but now it's like this huge chain in Japan oh, yeah. and, and Mr. Donut. Oh, really? I had no idea. Mr. Donut, which was like this two-shop donut shop from Boston, became like this huge chain in Japan, et cetera. So... Anyway, the point is, like, I feel like there's still this sort of relationship of receiving hmm. versus projecting outward that is that could also be discussed. Because I think China's still in the stage of receiving, where okay. their fancy stuff is receiving it from Japan and South Korea and, and, yeah. and so on. They're not at the stage yet. I mean, I think their goal is to get to the stage of producing and projecting and exporting. And South Korea does seem to be, like, making the transition, I guess. From from receiving to also like influencing and projecting and exporting. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess my question is more like almost like along what it will sound like. I think that China is the obvious answer, and I can't think of a better answer than China, right? Like obviously, it's going to be out of China. But you know, K-pop is so influenced by the West for very obvious reasons, including you know the fact that there's an army base there, AFKN, which was the Arms Forces Korea Network. You know, people the sort of Korean hippie movement in the 60s and 70s that was protesting the Vietnam War that was very, you know, that listened to a lot of sort of 60s and 70s American uh, folk music, a lot of protest music, and then sort of rival of hip hop into Korea through, you know, breakdancing and, and music and in the 80s and 90s and, you know, 2000s. And then it all evolves into like Blackpink or something like that, right? Like, or, or, or BTS. And, I, I, my curiosity is, you know, will that also be true of the next wave of music from Asia, whatever replaces K-pop? Will it still be so influenced by the West or will it be sort of a more like uh, sound that is more germane to like Chinese ears? Does that make sense? I don't even know what that <laughs> means in my head. Exactly. I only have I like don't a anymore. <laughs> there, yeah, there like is, a, there is like really a good. gong. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, the, yeah, like whatever, like the, whatever racist ways that you can think about it, but you know what I mean, right? Like there, I don't think that Canto pop is exactly the same as K-pop, for example, right? Like it, there is differences in the way that the music is scored. There's way differences right. in the way that it's sung. I just wonder if it's just going to be as Western as K-pop. Is this not an interesting question? It's an interesting question to me. <laughs> the so like the famous most the most famous I think uh, Mandarin pop artist is Jay Chow in Taiwan, mm-hmm. and he famously has a few songs that are I forget the exact phrase, but it means like Eastern inspired, and they're pretty good songs. So like, but they're like still pop songs with a few of these Eastern instruments, quote unquote. Um, no. Oh, really? Are they are they as popular as the Western song? I guess it's if it's only a couple, it's hard to tell. I mean, Jay Chow is a huge oeuvre, yeah. so it's hard to tell which are the most popular. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they're popular songs. Um, 
I mean, they're just like part of the the J-Chow legacy, but um, I don't have the vocabulary to describe what's going on musically. I don't understand music, but they all seem like pop songs to me. They like a beat, mm. they like three or four minutes long, but they just like incorporate like wind chimes or whatever the the uh, or who with the sort of two string guitar that they use or violin they use. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna be a cancel yeah. so bad. <laughs> they get the guy from the subway. Yeah, it's uh. No, it's 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 an interesting question. I would I would think that they would almost do it out of nationalistic pride to not make it, you know, even if it is something as, you know, cosmetic as sw- swapping out one instrument, right? Yeah, I would think that the next version of this would be not as reliant on the West, but unless Korean- that's just what unless that's just what everybody wants to listen yeah, to, I don't- right? I think any kind of mainstream pop production, regardless of where it takes place, is basically going to sound, I don't know, like, it's so hard to say what sounds like Western in terms of pop and rock now, because we're 50 years out from that moment, you know, but I think like, K-pop has its own kind of engineered sound that sounds different than like, you know, it has elements of kind of like bubblegum or mainstream pop here, but it kind of has its own thing. And obviously, the lyrics and stuff are catered to, they're not trying to be overly like, american or perfect english and stuff that isn't a goal you know so i think it has its own sound um one thing that i know one of our listeners who's also named jay kang he and i (laughs) have both read this um good little book called new kings of the world um which is on bollywood k-pop and dz and dz is um turkish soap operas and in um this book by fatima buto is really good i mean it's kind of breezy but you know i think it does a good job of kind of overviewing how all of these different um you know like basically eastern like popular forms have spread throughout the world and have found their own little fiefdoms all over so i don't know that it's necessarily going to be china i mean i you know who knows also how bollywood will morph and its musics will travel um i think there's a lot of yeah i think it's it's hard to say and i and i you know she notes that also that there's basically like a bunch of Chinese like music moguls who have kind of adopted the K-pop industrial pattern to make their mm-hmm. own basically like C-pop bands. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think Do it's you... an open question, but I think it'll kind of all sound this way, like poppy. I think the question is to what extent would like American artists begin to recognize Asian music as like something they would listen to and like they would choose to listen to as, as good as already happened. Is it? I think that's happened. I mean, yeah. I think that, I think that the, that if you are going to ask a question, which might not even be a particularly interesting question, which is where, what will be the predominant source of, of popular worldwide music, you know, in the upcoming next 25 years, I think the answer is very clearly Asia, right? More than the West. I think so. um, Oh yeah. Because K-pop is already more popular than like, you know, I don't know, neutral milk hotel. (laughs) Or like, uh, it's the weirdest <laughs> comparison ever. Or like, uh, or Halsey, or any of these. You know, maybe not. I, I don't know. It's probably more popular. BTS is more popular than Taylor Swift, right? Around yeah. the world, I it's think not for even sure. close. But do you think Taylor Swift is listening to BTS? I guess that's my question. Of course, Taylor Swift yeah, is listening to BTS, sure. and the people who work with Taylor Swift are like, "Well, how are we gonna get you tapped into this?" Really? You know? Okay. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Taylor Swift is going to do it, but I'm sure the conversation has been had, right? So, um, I don't know. Let's move on. It's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. It's fun Taylor to think Swift, about. Yeah, like... Taylor Swift doing a duet with, you know, uh, with. Who's a Korean folk singer? Do, do you know any Korean folk singers that are like sort of 
come up on this wave. It's not. It's all. It's just pop in music, folk. Right? I mean, I, there's a lot of folk and indie people I like in Korea, but yeah, I can't imagine any of them like really breaking through in this way. <laughs> yeah, she'll she'll just do a song with Blackpink and everyone will go crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, like, so we wanted to talk about uh, something a little more substantive than that, which is this big relief bill that came out. And I think that we want to talk about it just because I think that we had this idea at the beginning. And I think I said that I was going to give Biden, I said I was going to give Biden nine strikes after the, <laughs> I was like, it kept growing. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to give him nine strikes before I get too mad at him, you know, or seven maybe, you know, so like Syria obviously was one, you know, immigration is like probably four. I don't know. Both of those should be like three each. And, but, you know, I think that we should talk about this relief bill that was passed in some sort of, you know, uh, level-headed way, right? And so the details of it have come out. It's been written about a lot, including by friend of the podcast, Zach Carter in the New York Times. Um, it was written about in Vox and Eric Levitz in New York Magazine wrote about it as well. And so the details of it that you should know, I'm sure the first one you know is that there are direct payments, $1,400 for each person. Um, it extends $300 a week of unemployment benefits, which is a big deal. Um, there's a child tax credit up to $3,600. There's a lot of money given out to state and local governments, which, you know, given the response by these state and local governments seems to be a huge deal, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, you know, I think that uh, here, even in wealthy parts of the Bay Area, like this thing was really needed, right? Because yeah. you have yeah. tons of furloughed workers, you have people who have been sitting at home, and then you have essential workers who have really been you know, who need hazard pay, all this sort of stuff can go to that. Um, the pension funds and all that. Pension funds as well, right. Um, there is money for COVID testing and vaccines, and it extends Obamacare. And the one thing, of course, that, you know, got a lot of uh, play is that there is no $15 minimum wage hike. Uh, Tammy, uh, what do you think about this bill? That's such a, like, a broad question, but like, what do you think? Are you giving Biden strike seven on this or what? <laughs> I have to say I'm pretty excited about this bill, this law now. Um, I think it, um, you know, I think the fact that the Democrats went for something, anything is like pretty surprising. And, you know, I'm not going to give them like 100% on it, but I think that it's a really, it's a big thing. And I think a lot of people have been saying it's like potentially the biggest like anti-poverty package since the New Deal which is, you know, gigantic. I mean, we can kind of talk about like how optimistic we are about it, but I like a lot of the, you know, the things that you just ticked off, especially the kind of family benefits pieces and and sort of taking out, um, I think like building on some of the benefits from the pandemic, like taking it out of a kind of like welfare mode, you know, kind of stigmatized welfare mode into like a more of a universal public goods mode is like a huge step. Right, right. There's no like means testing here for the I mean, there is, but you know, it's you, it's just a salary cutoff, basically, mm -hmm. right. And then for the it's child, not sort of engineer, it doesn't feel like it's been engineered by like six people at McKinsey who are yeah. trying their best to make it spend the least amount of money and seem the best, right? Mm. And shaming um, the poor and yeah, all that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we must help the degenerates in our society type of thing. And yeah. like, what, what, what did you think about this? Yeah, it's very surreal because these are the things that I was thinking like if this if in some alternate universe where Bernie was president and they passed this bill, the left would be more excited, I think. And I think the right <laughs> would be a lot madder, right? Because mm. we would. But I think it's very confusing that Biden passed the bill. Right. And we're all sort of that's which is why I think a lot of us, you know, we'll talk about it are like skeptical. Like, is this going to last? Is this a sea change or is this 
a one-off act of desperation um, because <laughs> this is a lot of the stuff that progressives have wanted for a while, except for the, the minimum wage part, which might be a tell like that this isn't actually yeah. a sea change in government. Um, right. And all this yeah. stuff is one time only, right? It's for one year. Yeah. It's not like we all get another check for $1,400 next year. Um, it's a one-time thing. Uh, unemployment benefits, they're not extended $300 forever. Um, you know, the addition to it is not, is not permanent. There's not very much in it about, you know, rent relief or is there about like uh, eviction moratoriums or anything like that, which, you know, are going to be a problem for a long time upcoming. And uh, yeah, the child tax credit, I think is also one year. Right. And that, that yeah. also seems significant because I do think that a tax cut to people will help them with their childcare costs, which, you know, are going to be very strange in this, you know, what hopefully is a post pandemic period coming up. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's uh, the, the reason I want to talk about it though, is just because of, there is something that I think we can talk about because it, it is sort of a tension with some of the stuff that we've said before. And, now, this is from Levitz in New York Magazine, and he's he writes about sort of like, well, how did this happen? And a lot of it goes to like the Georgia elections, right? And he writes mm -hmm. that Georgia voters proceeded to prove the pundits wrong, and then Chuck Schumer's majority did too. By giving Democrats full control of the federal government, Peach State voters didn't merely secure Biden's right to account, and, uh, or I'm sorry, to an appoint an EPA director with McConnell's consent. They also secured America the full employment fiscal policy and universal child allowance uh, allowances that progressives have sought for generations. Uh, I don't know why I read that so poorly. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> I need to make the type bigger on this thing. But um, plain yeah, the, well, plain the type. like is, is the is what's implied here, like what we should conclude out of this. And I don't really have a great answer for this, that perhaps, you know, there is a benefit to uh, Electing someone like Joe Biden and thinking about electability and thinking about, you know, someone like John Ossoff, who, you know, like in the past, I've really not been a big fan of, you know, but who did end up getting the job done. You know, is this sort of the wake up call that, you know, the sort of angry left needs being like, hey, we can do this if we pull together and win these elections. <laughs> and perhaps we should not like always go for the most extreme uh, yeah. candidates, you know, because this is not just the effect of. 2020 right it's also the effect of 2018 right mm -hmm. and so which was you know i think that democrats a lot of the candidates did run on somewhat moderate moderate platforms right and all those people ended up voting for for this bill i don't know what do you think i'm just gonna throw that out there oh man so the elections are obviously very important and it's very striking because I remember Levitz was one of the most pessimistic pieces after election day when it seemed like Georgia was out of the question. So it is like, wow, this big thing just happened um, that was completely unexpected. On the other hand, like the reason they're passing this bill is not because the Democrats have a change of heart, right? It's all these extra things. It's COVID, right? It's the stuff that they didn't plan for and they're, they feel forced to do this. Um, and, yeah, so we don't want to. I don't think we want to put too much. Um, what's the word? Like agency or too much like or too much credit to the Democratic Party for this. They had to do this. They feel like they had to do this. Um, um, if anything, just to get reelected again, right? Because because yeah. if, if they have a bad um, whatever uh, stimulus package, things will go poorly. So it's a combination, obviously. But um, 
I feel, you know, I feel like we're very lucky that they eked out the 50 to 49 or 50 to 50. Right. But um, it's like the reason they're doing this is because this, this fucking pandemic just took over the world, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. But you know, a lot of things can still be kept in place, right? You have like a, I don't want to use the term Overton window. Cause actually I don't know what it means, but you know, you have like a new norm <laughs> that people have a new vision of what the government can do for them. Right. I mean, that's the I've hope, been certainly. alive for however, 41 years. And the only other time the government sent me like a check for no reason was when Obama put out the $600, you know, right? Like, I think that's, I mean, at least in my adult life, and this is way different than that, right? Like it's uh, for a family like mine, it's uh, between the two stimuluses, it's 6,000 extra dollars, which is a lot of childcare costs for us, right? A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of housing payments, et cetera. And um, for families that are struggling, it's, it's, a, it's a significant amount of money, much more than I think that we have really thought about. And it, it does matter that it is in the form of a check that goes in your checking account as opposed to like a tax credit, right? Which is a bit more abstract yeah. and difficult to grasp. So I don't know. Do you like, I think that maybe, I think there's some reason to be optimistic that some of this stuff will usher in like a new normal. I hope so. I mean, I, I, I do agree with Andy that it's, this is part of the, the Democrats establishing themselves in reaction to Trump to, you know, basically paper over the, the, the pain of this past year and the four years and to say, you know, put a kind of stake down and say, we are different in these ways. But because it is characterized as a relief package, there's going to have to be a lot of activism and organizing that occurs to actually make it translate into something beyond that, beyond just this like one time thing, even though it is like, it's incredible. I mean, I think we should celebrate it. Like it's an amazing accomplishment that isn't, you know, just because of electoral politics, obviously, but because of all of the street activity that has pushed electeds. Um, but yeah, I think, um, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how we can make people feel like, oh, yeah, this is possible and it should continue. Right. Yeah. And it's also like something that is, at, you know, on the don't give them too much credit thing. It's something that like in terms of polling is like a slam dunk. Right. Seventy mm. percent of Americans yeah. uh, totally. supports uh, a relief bill of this size. Right. And I bet that like actually the number is higher than that. Right. Because you have some fiscal conservatives who are just going to say, but they're going to be very happy when a check comes. Right. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. It, it seems to, I just kind of generally agree with the consensus out here that I just don't understand what the Republicans are thinking by all opposing this. You know, like yeah. what is the thinking behind it? It's an incredibly popular thing. And I don't get like what the point is of, you know, if, if we just think of them as self-interested beings, which obviously we shouldn't because they have other people pulling strings for them. But like, I don't know, it's just it's kind of mind boggling that it was even contentious at this point. Yeah, I don't know. I, I honestly didn't follow like the passage stuff too closely. It seemed like it was going to pass. Right. So um, the other thing that's kind of out there, we can I guess throw this out there. I don't know if we want to go too in depth into it, but a few people have talked about how. Well, there's this debate. Is this a stimulus package in the sense of, um, is this like a Keynesian, like grow the economy kind of package? Or is it just help out people who are hurting package, right? And the, yeah. there's like a fine line there. And to really signal a sort of quote unquote sea change and like ending neoliberalism and return to Keynesianism and all that stuff, the government would really have to invest in like industry and infrastructure and things like that. And there's been reports out there. There's one in the Washington Post I was able to get past the firewall <laughs> um, about how you know, this is the, the stimulus is the first 
bill, the second bill that does have bipartisan support, is something like an industrial policy. And that does have bipartisan support because it's really being sold as an anti-China policy. Like we need this, we need these, oh, yeah. we need this to compete with China. And you know, people are kind of. I think uh, my friend Jake Warner and and um, Eric Levitz have kind of pointed out this is a little. You know, what are we doing? You know, like are we really gonna? Is industrial policy or is is this new era of American governance all being couched in a sort of like major power war? Um, because that's kind of different than like the sort of uh, sort of global New Deal ethic of like mm. FDR and Johnson and the Marshall Plan, where right. the whole world is lifted up. Is it going to be just about kind of a, a falling American empire, just like trying to fend fend off like fend off its um, you know fend off its rivals? Um, in the meantime, when you know that's not very good for climate change, that's not very good for global cooperation on many other fronts. So that's something else to throw out there, where I feel like. You know, once the Republicans get on board, that's probably like a sign that, you know, something big has happened. It's either COVID or it could be like fear of China or it could be a combination of them. Or it could be both. Yeah. 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 No, I don't think that the fear of China is, you know, I think that looms over basically everything here, um, including this bill. Right. Yeah, Um, I think so. It's it's just like, well, how do we how do we reclaim what was ours? Right. Like, how do we how do we get back to. Which was basically Donald Trump's, you know, MAGA yeah. <laughs> message in a yeah. lot of ways. Oh, but uh, you know, that shouldn't preclude people from thinking that reinvestment in infrastructure and industry is a bad thing, right? But it will be couched in this anti-China way, and it will be couched in an anti-China way, not just by the Republicans, but also by Joe Biden, I imagine, right? Like, um, yeah, there's no way that that's not going to happen because being anti-China, much like the stimulus bill, is extremely popular right now. Yeah. Right. Do you yeah. see that thing where like 60% of people think that like there should be a cap on the number of Chinese uh, international students at universities? <coughs> Whoa, really? Oh, boy. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it seems like anti-China is just going to be our reality for the next like 10 years or something like that. Holy shit. I didn't see that. <laughs> I think, I think. Unless China just... can produce enough great pop bands to, you know, <laughs> to come over here and dance and sing. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Make everyone feel better. Um, uh, Tammy, I'm sorry to be. Oh, no, it's okay. I think the one way in which there there is an industrial policy sort of at work here, but in a way that you know is is more like in a feminized sector that doesn't always like seem industrial, is the heavy investment in healthcare because it goes beyond just kind of shoring up doing the COVID stuff. There's like massive investments in Medicaid and hospitals, rural hospitals. So, and that's a huge part of the American economy. So I think in that sense, it does kind of go beyond just a sort of you know one time stimulus. Well, obviously it has to continue, but. Right. That that to me seems infrastructural in a way yeah. that that is right. more than just yeah the recovery. So there's package. some other stuff, right? Like uh, Tammy, I think that's what you're referencing. Like indigenous communities are getting 31.2 billion dollars in aid, right? Which is the largest investment the federal government has ever given to to uh, Native American people, and that in, is desperately <coughs> needed just because of the toll that COVID oh God, took on yeah. those communities, right? Much I think that of of any community in the United States, those communities were hit the hardest. Black farmers will receive $5 billion in recompense, That's right? right? For, yeah. uh, for discrimination and dispossession, which is, you know, a form of reparations, I think, right? Mm-hmm. It is not the reparations oh, of people. Oh, discrimination. Wow. I didn't see that language. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah this that, is a um, long-time campaign out of like FDA discrimination. Right? <coughs> right. Right. And that, that is part of the bill as well. Right. And, um, yeah, and I think that that the 
I know that people are like saying, well, 2000 versus 1400 and that that was like a backtrack, but I don't know, like, you know, for a household of four, it's almost $6,000. Right. And so, um, and that will be spent in ways that will also help to, and I don't know, I, I, I think it's very hard to get mad at this thing. I think the re- better question is just like, is this the end of like a differentiated left? Um, electorally yeah that's a good question that's that's what i can't figure out right like if chuck schumer stands up he's like hey i helped with this thing you know like what are you yelling at me about you know all that money you have in your bank account yeah you know like uh like i i'm for that too you know and so is this like a co-optive move you know one-time move right to try and squeeze out like the dissidents on the left electorally is a question that i have right oh i see yeah, because like you know, like the the big questions are like, well, our 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 voters in the middle are they afraid of socialism? You know, are they afraid of are they afraid of defund the police programs? Um, and the best way to sort of make it not socialism or make the socialists shut up is to just kind of do it one socialism, you know, and then just be like, <laughs> hey, <laughs> you know, say, what do you guys what are you guys complaining about? You know. Do a one I don't socialism. Know. I, yeah, doing like one thing that's like vaguely socialist. That's that's something I, I was thinking about it this morning and I was like, oh, I maybe maybe that is why they did this, you yeah. know, in a way, because now they can actually like stop this movement, you know, from young people to do this. And, yeah. you know, I don't know. What do you think? I, Tammy Kim, your thoughts. Well, I, mean, I don't going back to my John McLaughlin. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's gonna work. Way. I don't think that's going to work because I think the ship has sailed. And I also think that, um, you know, that that may operate to some extent on the congressional level, but we still have they still have to deal with the electeds down ticket. And I think like, you know, also with all this money coming into the state and federal, the state and local governments, there's going to be a lot of campaigning that will continue around, you know, defund and um, like local minimum wages and stuff like that. So all of that's going to happen at the local level. And none of this can really it just has anything to say about that. Um, well, yeah, I, I agree. But I also think that on the local level that people could also say the same thing, right? Like, what do you actually stand for, right? If, yeah. the, if the mainstream Dems are the one that passes unprecedented bill, then you've been mischaracterizing them this entire time as like neoliberal, you know, stuck in the pocket of tech and, and banking type of people. And actually, like, a more pragmatic vision is what actually got that money to you. You know, it's not like AOC and the squad yelling at Nancy Pelosi. Like, that's good theater. But when it comes down to it, what we need is meat and potato politicians <laughs> passing meat progressive policies. I don't know. I'm, no. I'm almost convincing myself. I obviously yeah, don't believe yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I'm like halfway to convincing myself here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he I think, I mean, this goes back to conversations we were having around November, which is, as we kind of assumed Biden would win, but more the question was, we have to argue, you know, we have to win the narrative war about how Biden won. And I guess similarly, the narrative war over how this bill would get passed is it because the progressives pushed someone like Schumer to embrace their policies or is it because Schumer turns out to be good actually and he did it right. anyway and, you know, right. And, <laughs> you know, we it's predictable how we think about this, but I guess it is a question of, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, for, I think for us in our circles, it's pretty obvious, like this is a tribute to the progressives pushing the Overton quote unquote yeah. window in a certain direction, but I don't know. I don't know what people in these streets are saying about this bill and if they are giving credit to the to the to the mainstream Democrats. Um, 
I mean, I don't know. That $15 minimum wage thing was so bizarre. Like, why do they, like, why did eight Democrats vote against it? And why is Manchin, like, you know, acting like this? I don't follow it that closely. Yeah, I but... can't figure that out either. <laughs> $15 minimum wage is also a popular policy. Yeah. So Especially popular. in, like, uh, the swing state of Florida, which everybody cites that that polling, you know, where it had, mm. I think, almost 60% support in, yeah, in what and ended up being right, a red yeah. state. Yeah, so... Um, I don't know what's going on there either. I guess we could have Joe Manchin on the, on the podcast. Here, like Joe. What's the deal with? We could just like lay, live prank call him or something. <laughs> I I obviously agree that I think that it's like the left pushing people towards these solutions, and I think that that also involves street protests that were going around this summer, right? Because it was a f- show of force of how united people could be to actually go out on the streets protest something together and i think it scared the shit out of a lot of mainstream democrats right um and now of course the narrative has been turned around to say that that's actually why the elections were close that's why you know we lost house seats everything like that i don't think i believe that necessarily i do think that perhaps in immigrant communities that is true you know like in a lot of ways where you know people do like law and order and uh especially now in asian communities i think that concern is much higher right but Mm -hmm. um I don't know. I think that something needed to basically jolt them out of their way of doing things. And I think that the the part of co-option is that you don't co-opt something that's not a threat, right? Like you don't co-opt it if it's not a problem at mm, all. You just sure. sort of let it go. And so even if it is a co-option form of one-time co-option, it actually is a victory for the left. Definitely. You see that mental gymnastics? Yeah, you did a real yeah. twirl there. I should, like a, I should be like a propagandist at some point. Where it's like everything is a win for us. <laughs> so you're AOC speechwriter, right? Yeah, uh, nothing is a loss. Yeah. I do think, well, also, did you guys see how um, AOC basically got the DCCC to, to um, break down their blacklist? against progressive consultants on primary campaigns. So I think there are changes like in the establishment that are very clearly caused by Wait, you know, so these insurgents. Explain what happened. I didn't, I didn't see this. It's basically like the, the Democratic committee used to have this policy where they wouldn't allow money oh, yeah. to go to consultants like on, you know, pro- basically progressive primary challengers. Um, and that's like no more. I mean, we'll see if it actually comes to anything, but that yeah. was a pretty significant symbolic move also. Or there's that story about in Nevada, a bunch of progressives won um, all these seats. And then the, the, all the centrist Democrats basically, like, because the party was just taken over, just like quit. Yeah. Uh, and stepped down. So, and then it was sort of like good game, like, but we're going to, like, we're on different teams. <laughs> so we're going to leave now, which was kind of amazing to read. Um, amazing outcome. Yeah. I don't think the tensions are going to go away. I, um, but uh, I do feel better <laughs> about where the progressives are. I feel are. better, too. Yeah. And I yeah, think that definitely. if this is the only thing that comes out of the entire Biden era, that's good. It's still like a <laughs> big win, you know. And um, my only fear is, you know, what I expressed already, which is that I do think that when if you go and you and I, I have many normie friends. Right. Um, and uh, when I talk to them, they're all excited about this bill, except for one of them. But the rest of them are excited about <laughs> okay. this bill. And um, I'll let you guess if you guys are listening to the show, which one I'm referring to. But um, they give all the credit to Biden. Mm. right? And most of them were actually Biden supporters, even when he was down. You know, a couple of them are even Buttigieg supporters. Right. I'm telling you, these are like, you know, these are my friends who I watch sports with. And a couple of them are, you know, on Team Bernie. But uh they don't see it as the left pushing the uh, p- pushing the party to the left, right? They see it as Joe Biden 
doing the thing that Joe Biden always wanted to do. And hmm. even during the election, like re- leading up to November, Joe Biden was putting out those messages, right? I'm going to be like a big ideas, big gut, big president that does big things on climate and the economy. And this is his first shot on it. And I don't know. I think that in some ways that message is going to be very powerful because people really only want to fixate on one one guy doing things, right? Like, and that's usually the president. Yeah, and I don't know. I think, that, I think it will make it <laughs> difficult for for people to point the finger and scream at at centrist Dems in the way that they did in the past. Yeah, like FD, FDR gets all yeah. the credit for the New Deal, but that was he was pushed to do that by like unions and communists, right? And all for that sure. stuff. Right. Yeah, it's true. I, right. I, and I almost kind of feel like, yeah, should we care? Should 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 progressives care and like? be like no it's like it was our people or should we just be happy the bill got passed i don't know i feel like we should just all <laughs> go back to like uh you know like the rcp at this point and just be like electoral politics is over and then just go back to plotting revolutions or something <laughs> that's always my resolution yeah. not the rcp itself but you know maybe less yeah. emphasis on uh electoral politics although at this point it's hard to like argue that it did not have a good outcome in this Instance, yeah, which I guess yeah. is our whole point here. Um, it's, it's very surreal because in Philly, uh, you know, we're like looking at public schools and, you know, all these headlines about how the city government is always in debt. And in theory, now that's been solved by this bill. Like in theory, right. all the, like years and years and years of every elementary school having issues has technically been solved. But I still feel like we're all holding our breath and be like, we'll believe it when we actually see it, you know, when the, where the money actually gets used and distributed to. And I, I do think that there is a real... Uh, to be determined in terms of does this money actually get used in the way that um, it says it will, like the government says it will. Um, local governments, you know, these are the same governments that were in power before the before the pandemic, right? With all the sort of like issues with right. like coordination and efficiency and infighting. So, if all the money in Philly goes to like building super tall skyscrapers for Chinese and, <laughs> and Russian oligarchs to buy and uh, to give tax credits to developers, then I think we could be a little bit more skeptical. <laughs> but I don't know right now, at least here where I am, which is obviously a very you know particular place in the Bay Area, like the way that the politicians are talking about it, I don't think that that's where it's going to be. You know, I think it will be. You think it will be used well? Yeah, I think it'll be distributed. Because I think there's going to be a lot of attention on on them, right? And again, that is a victory for the left. Um, I'm just not sure what the identity of the left electorally going forward will be after this bill. Is that fair? Hmm. I think it's fair. Yeah. Um, okay, another thing happened, which was that uh, everybody, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, I think I'm going to stop using Twitter, by the way. <laughs> I was like, or at least in the same way. It's just you like, got... I can't do this anymore. I do all these stupid troll things. And then like, they always like end up being funny for three hours. And then they just become like <laughs> shitty. And I'm not saying something like, oh, I'm so tired or whatever. It's my own fucking fault for doing this. But like, I got to just stop. Like, it's so stupid, you know? Like, uh, and then I figure out that like the people who are the most bad at me are people who I generally have the same politics as. And so in my head, I'm always envisioning like making like a 50 year old, you know, professor mad, but then it ends up not being that. You know? like, why am I doing this? Anyway. But isn't it usually it's usually like a morning tweet about like music or something, right? I know. I know. But those are the ones that get me in the most trouble. Oh, and God, it, they're really? all jokes. You know, like I don't I don't care about rent. 
you know <laughs> i like sonic youth like you know like it's just like what what is what it you know it's, it's obviously a joke about like a certain type of white dude you know but whatever i don't know i guess they'd get mad and then some of them are younger than i think it is so you want to you want to quit relevant. while you're at the top and you can get rent, you can get rent <laughs> trending by yourself single-handedly <laughs> No, no, no. That was about a rent bill. <laughs> that was okay. That. Oh, but that's so funny. <laughs> I thought it was, was not you. about my student. <laughs> I love that. Um, all right. So uh, the thing that happened that was on all of our social media is people sort of reflecting on one year in lockdown, right? And um, that is also true for all of us. You know, I think it was, what, what was the Rudy Gobert day where Rudy Gobert got coronavirus? I think it was like the March 11th. 11th. So it was a few it? days ago. Yeah. Um, Thursday. The basketball player who the shut down, player. she shut down the NBA. <laughs> oh, okay. So, okay. So Tammy, for you, what was like the, the thing that shut down society for you? Cause for me, it's sports, but. Oh my God. My first reaction is going drinking into the library. No, but like, do you remember like the event? Is that what you mean? No, like what was oh, the, what was the event in the news? Besides my library closing? Um, okay. <laughs> No, well, it was interesting for me last year because I was in um, Tacoma, Seattle when the Kirkland thing happened. The, so oh, that the, was definitely wow, yeah. the when the first facility, outbreak yeah. occurred. Yeah. So that was like, that was obviously but, very early. But that was before society shut down, right? It was before the actual lockdown. Yeah. Then I flew back here. I had one dinner party and that's it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was it? That was it. No. Yeah. I like, we were living in an Airbnb. And then I freaked oh, yeah. out because our Airbnb was over at the end of the month. And then I was like, we can't be stuck here and have the Airbnb run out if there's like a horrible pandemic and zombies are walking around the streets. <laughs> and so then I switched us to another Airbnb and then we didn't go outside for like two weeks or something like that. It was just oh, uh, God. But it was for that was the day of Rudy Gorbear. Like Andy, I was like only triggered by i was not triggered by tom hanks i was only triggered by the nba shutting down i was like oh my god they stopped the nba what are we gonna do um yeah i don't know i don't i i like i don't really have a point here but i did want to think like is there anything in this year that that you know that sticks out to you as being um and i want to focus a little bit on asia as well just because that's where we started this podcast was just talking about china and korea um and their coronavirus responses like is there is there anything that 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 you think back on and just like oh we got that wrong or we got that right (laughs) i remember the week before so i i think i was probably the most freaked out of all my students professors like when i I came in i was like guys i don't think we're gonna see each other anytime soon and they'll have this look on their face like why what's gonna happen like not they weren't they weren't getting the talk from their other professors but I do remember that week also that I was washing my hands at school over and over, but I was telling people masks don't work. I, I you know, like the surgeon, do you remember the U S surgeon general said masks yeah. don't work yeah. for like three yeah. months. Yeah. And so I was like, just having conversation with like my colleagues. Yeah. Masks don't work. We just got to wash our hands a lot. And th- th- I remember oh my God. having that conversation the last time I was on campus. And then, um, yeah, subsequently feeling like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you told your students masks don't work. No, it was just like s- small talk as I'm like oh, one okay. foot away from somebody else. You know? like before I start today's lesson <laughs> on, the, on the TV wars, you know, I want to just say something. Masks definitely don't work. You should not wear them. <laughs> uh, Tammy, what, what, what do you think from the first shows did we get wrong? 
Well, we talked a lot about pangolins. So we were trying to figure out what happened with the bats and the pangolins and the wet market and stuff. So I guess we were sorting through that. I remember you guys were like ordering stuff online and then and then like putting it in a different room for 24 hours. Oh, for sure. And I was laughing at you. Yeah. I had a basement Um, room that I put all our packages in. Yeah. I feel like I, I think we felt like a certain level of hubris around like the Asian response. Um, after the moment when we realized masks actually were did need to be worn, <laughs> I still feel hubris. Um, I don't know about you. Like, well, their vaccine <laughs> vaccinations are not great. Sure, right? in, sure. Yeah, uh, Asia or Western Europe outside of the UK. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I don't really know what to do with that, except you know, kind of quietly be like, eh, I don't know. Maybe you should give a little bit of credit to Operation Warp Speed. Although that probably is going to be very contentious, but you know, our vaccine rollout is not great. It was really bad at the beginning and now it seems to be okay. But I also think it's totally disingenuous to only compare it to Israel, which is what a lot of people do. Yeah. Israel is a very, it's like, okay, like, you know, how's New Jersey doing? Maybe that's a better comparison (laughs) point, you know, but, um, but we're doing better than almost all of Western Europe at this point definitely better than asia korea which was like the shining example of the coronavirus response has vaccinated almost no people still right and canada had, hasn't really vaccinated mishaps. many people wait right? so what's, um, what's going on in south korea what's what's the issue they don't oh well the, just in the first round of the vaccines um a couple of people had very bad reactions i think one or two people died because they had given them to people in um elder care facilities who had heart problems and so that also had it had a bit of a chilling effect and was obviously very scary. But you know they were like isolated incidents, wow. but they were kind of in the first round, which isn't great. Which, which but also the government didn't really get enough of it, right? right. That's the issue. Yeah. East Asia yeah, doesn't exactly. produce its own mRNA well, that, vaccine. That's the thing I kept thinking about because I went to get my first vaccine last week, and it was kind of this magical thing where it was at a federal center, and it was all these like twenty year old kids who'd been shipped in from the military in like Colorado, and it was just like this incredible like ballet of like federal like uh-huh. provision uh-huh. um but i just and and it was like great and everything worked and i was like oh my god we should all believe in the public sector like this is so amazing um but also <laughs> if i was like you know if you th- step back and think about it it's like it's horrifying that we get to do this as americans you know yeah. that we can fuck up so bad and kill ourselves and then you know then ramp up our industrial policy and like hog all of the vaccines of the world i mean it's just it's actually despicable yeah the, you know, the, I was happy to get my vaccine, but still, <laughs> it's quite tragic, you know. You got vaccinated already? I got one because I teach in person. So I've been eligible oh, for like yeah, a month yeah. and so a half. An educator. But yeah. yeah, I wasn't able to get it. Yeah. So. New York, just anecdotally, it sounds like New York, they just have like, they're just giving out vaccines to everyone uh, compared to Philly, where I have no idea when I'm going to get one. It's like. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But it was so bad here, under, I guess. I now qualify under California. As of Monday, I think, because of, you know, past severe health problems. But um, Mm. it, yeah. uh, So I'm going to try. So when are you going to, you have to like start trying to sign up, but it's hard to get in sort of thing? It's not that hard to get in. Okay. Um, But it's the same thing as everything else, which is just that like there is an equity problem here in California that is very well publicized, but that in none of the publicizing of it, is there any sort of sense of how to solve this thing and i remember when i was like writing about equity problems and testing the people are just like the vaccine is going to be the same problem 
Mm. And what people don't understand at the state level is that you have to actually drive a truck in there with tests, you know, into these neighborhoods with tests. You have to drive a truck in with vaccines and you have to set up. What's happened in the state of California is that they started out by giving out these silly codes, right? And like basically you needed like an iPhone to get these codes and they would give them out to community organizers, which, you know, is anybody, right, in in those communities. And then those people were tasked with this. (laughs) Yeah, but not even like Obama, you know, it could be like somebody who has a lot of fault. I'm like someone who has a lot of Instagram followers or something like that. So they give these, these people the codes and they say, you distribute them to your network, right? And then of course what happens is that That they end up selling a lot of them, right? And then those codes go out to people who are well tapped in the internet and are working from home. And those people use the codes to go in and get vaccinated, which is why you have this massive equity problem in terms of vaccinations. And so like the fact that the state didn't set up that infrastructure when there are people who are telling them and who had done successful tests, like, you know, uh, pilot programs with testing to show that you could get testing in these neighborhoods where they thought that you couldn't get testing into The fact that they didn't do with the vaccination is this massive failure on California's part. And then they sort of rolled it back and they're like, okay, we are going to start bringing trucks in. You know, we are going to start going into the neighborhoods, but we have this equity problem. So everyone has to wait until we solve the equity problem first, which then leads to everybody else getting super mad about the equity problem. Right. And so then now you have people like on Nextdoor and stuff like that screaming about like, you know, wokeness (laughs) or whatever like that, because they're still waiting for their vaccination. And all they've heard is like the reason why you don't have your vaccination is because of all the black and Latino people. Right. That's not true. The reason you don't have a vaccination is because the state fucked up. Right. And um, yeah, it's the same sort of bullshit scapegoating that always happens. And, um, you know, it's because they didn't they they only sort of take it seriously as like a thing, but they don't actually think about the solution and they don't listen to the people who are giving you the solutions, even if the solutions are going to be a little bit more expensive than printing off a bunch of stupid codes, you know, Hmm. which is the reason why they tried to do it that way. Because Gavin Newsom is like a technocrat, right? Yeah. And he's just totally. like, well, we're going to do a tech related. It's just like tech related. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? A lot of these people don't even speak <laughs> English. You know, like, like how, how are you going to do this? Um, <laughs> and, it makes no sense. In, in Philly, they have this like email that was sent out to people who qualified. And then it obviously got passed around to people who didn't qualify. And there's nothing to stop people from signing up. And they finally, yeah. like, quote unquote, fixed it. But the articles in the Inquirer or the Philly Inquirer saying the person who invented the system was like, there's nothing wrong with the system. We just didn't think people would be so immoral as to pass around oh, wow. to their friends, um, uh, uh, basically a lifeline, you know, to a vaccine from, a, from the pandemic. And this is, to me, very clearly like covering your butt for, for fucking up, right? Because this is the, obviously what was going to happen. Yeah, obviously. obviously what was going to What else could possibly have happened? I know. <laughs> So they're just like trying it to also, shame people. Yeah, it's crazy. It yeah. also happened during testing, right? Which is that they would set up these testing sites even after they decided to drive the tests into these neighborhoods, right? They would set up testing sites and then the first few days word would get out and then the entire line would be uh, white tech workers from San Francisco oh who had driven down to like these neighborhoods in the south of San Francisco to to get tested because they heard that there was a testing site. And then, you know, the only way that they could do it is basically by doing mobile pop-ups directly in the neighborhoods, which is expensive, which takes a lot of community organizing, which takes a lot of people who know the community, where to put them, what corners to put them on, what streets to put them on. And the states, as far as I can tell, most states have not done any of that, right? And they're just like, well, this is for 
now it's your turn, you know, and they expect that people aren't going to, yeah. of course, people are going to cut the line. Right? Yeah. They want to yeah. go, they want to go outside and, you know, not wear a mask and yeah. go to parties or a lot of them might be health compromised in ways that makes it, that make them scared. Right. And, um, and they're going to go out and do it, you know, and it's hard to like blame those people too. Right. When I blame them a little, <laughs> I don't like, know. I for mean, instance, like, I, like, I know people who definitely don't teach in person, but because they're categorized as academics, they will say mm-hmm. they're teaching in person to get it. Or like people have two houses and like in one of those house zip codes, they can qualify, you know, things like this. It's, or, you know, you have a car and you're well, you have like two you houses, it's a, a problem. It's, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, very, you gotta, you gotta hire staff to take care of your two houses and then you have to be in contact. <laughs> yeah, with it's really staff. expensive. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't blame the people because I just think that everybody has gone through this year together, right? And that regardless of where you are on the economic spectrum, you, it has not been a great year. And I don't think that that means that people should cut the line, but I do understand when you see things not working and then you cut the line, I think that's a little bit more understandable, you know, um, especially since like these solutions are basically engineered. So people will cut the line, you know, like you could think of a better way to have tech workers at, at Hollywood. People cut the line. They come out with like, I, you know, posts that, like, can be shared through like group chat. You know? so dumb. So dumb. This, um, this makes me think of our post office episode where, cause I was thinking oh. like, what would, what would like a responsible society where there is a clear, transparent, and trustworthy connection between the population and the government? Like, what kind of institution would that be? I don't think we have one, right? But like in other countries, it would be like the post office or something like the post office. Yeah. Um, or like. Yeah. Or people here would, you know, like sort of the technocrats would say it should be Amazon. But right. <laughs> well, like it's going through like Rite Aid and 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 whatever that other drug company, and I'm like, this is kind of crazy. Walgreens, yeah, yeah, we're relying upon like CVS. a pharmacy company to distribute a, a vaccine. Like, I don't know. I mean, that's just. I mean, it's kind of like screaming at clouds, but it seems pretty insane to yeah. me that this is how the United States does it. I guarantee that after all this is over, that there will be many studies published that are quietly funded that shows that <laughs> CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid did the best job of distributing the vaccine. Of course, those are going to come out and they're going to become part of the public. You know, they're going to be written about in mainstream newspapers and they're going to just be part of like the public, you know, public knowledge of things because that's how information gets around. Right. Those things get privileged. That information goes out and then suddenly everyone thinks that Rite Aid, Walgreens and CVS did the best job, uh, did better than cities, uh, for example. Right. City governments. And I don't know. Maybe it's true. Yeah. I have no idea. I mean, but, like, it would make sense. That, City governments that's are broke. definitely going to be the narrative. Yeah, right, right. And they don't have the infrastructure to set this up. They don't have, you know, I don't know how many Walgreens are within like biking distance from me, but it's like six maybe. <laughs> so um, I wow. don't know. Uh, the big question I have coming out of this, though, is that like the pandemic also saw this moment and i think we all felt it we all talked about it and i still believe it that you know during the summer where it felt like there was when the protests were going on that there was a chance to have like a new society that comes out of this right not to be like the most cheesy or whatever but there was a vision (laughs) that i think i saw at least personally one that was you know based on you know anti-racism if that's a term you want to use but right like sort of grounded in black lives matter movement that would that would look to touch on solidarity with other groups, right? With other people on, on economic terms, there was a lot of the conversation around. It was not just about 
uh, police violence, but it was about all forms of justice, right? There are people, it was a truly multi-ethnic, yeah. you know, multi-class protest that went on. And I guess my question is like, where do you think we are on that? You know, like sort of a street protest based, you know, sort of dissent that can radically change society. Like, what do you think has happened with that? Because, you know, I don't know, there were protests around the country because it was the anniversary of Breonna Taylor's murder. But, um, you know, I think that a lot of centrists would at least say, well, that was a whole lot of nothing, you know, like that, that whole thing has dissipated. (laughs) I don't know. I've been obsessing over this too. And I just don't really know the answer. I think like, you know, my, the optimistic and easy way out would be to say that it takes time to see what the fruits of all of these things, you know, are, which I think is true always. Um, You know, like, did that influence what we're seeing with Amazon at Bessemer? You know, is that, you know, is that going to feed into a bunch of, you know, union campaigns that we're seeing all over the country, which, you know, got going during the pandemic? Um, Are we going to see it translated into defund campaigns at the local level and in mayoral elections this year, city council elections this year? You know, I hope so. Um, But I don't know. I'm feeling a little bit down about it. Missing that, that feeling. Which one are you feeling the most down about? I just, I just am down about the fact that the street activity dissipated so fast. Um, I guess it just did. I, I thought it would go on longer. You mean like right. in August or whenever? Yeah, that it would stretch through the fall or that we would figure out some sort of infrastructure to continue it. But, you know, it's hard. It's like everyone is scared of dying. Um, you know, it got yeah. cold. It's like there are natural things that happen yeah. that you can't really sustain that. But I, I would like to think that, you know, in different ways, there have been like strands of this that are that are continuing. I don't know. Yeah. And a lot of it, I think, was motivated by like a repudiation of Trump. Right. And the, and that's for that sure. Now yeah. that that's not such an obvious thing that you can go out totally. and do. Yeah. Any, what are your, any what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think. Tammy's right that we'll have to see. It's more like, will will that stuff get absorbed into, or vice versa? Will like the 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 like the Democrats, for instance, um, co-opt a lot of that stuff? They seem to be pretty willing to co-opt a lot of the stuff. Um, they're not going to co-opt defund police, right? But they'll, they'll co-opt it into something yeah. <laughs> like police sensitivity, right? Which mm-hmm. um, I don't know what the status of that is. If if like are people still pushing that um, publicly, right? Um, if, if they're protests or, or things of that. I mean, you, I mean, Tammy, you were recently at a protest in Chinatown. Did, did, did it feel like? Yeah, that was great. Much, did it kind of feel like an extension of last summer or was it? No, it didn't. It felt, it felt, it felt though like old times a bit of like worker activity in Chinatown combined with the panic of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, I think the like the economic suffering is still so clear. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I couldn't I couldn't say that it was kind of like part of this thing that had brewed all year. You know, yeah. it didn't feel that way. I do think that what's happening with Amazon workers in Alabama is tied to the summer protests. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I don't and I campaign. do think that the size of this relief bill is tied to those protests. I don't know beyond that, you know, 
if it will continue to have an effect as you know months go on since they happen and i actually yeah. don't know if this summer will also be a summer of protests like it was yeah you know, these things usually happen in the summer for right. obvious reasons yeah. <laughs> um it's hard to protest in the winter in minnesota even though they yeah. did for jamar clark right um but it's a smaller group and it's harder to get people out for and, sure because it's fucking cold outside um yeah. and uh i don't know you know my hope is always that it will be right that you know the issues did not go away but I don't know. I think that in terms of the police thing that they had, the real problem is that this, you know, there is like a, the national spike in violent crime murders is pretty real, you know, and I do think that it has affected a lot of people. And I think that, that it's hard to do that narrative right now, you know, and I -hmm. I think that, I don't think that means that people should give up. I certainly won't, but I do think that it makes it much more difficult in terms of gaining traction, right? Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you basically have a clean through narrative that I reject personally, but that, you know, the murder started rising at when George Floyd was killed, you know, and, you know, it's a disgusting argument. I think it's one made in bad faith that yeah. you know, takes out the fact that we're in a fucking global pandemic, you know, Seriously? people yeah. are going broke, you know, everyone's at home all the time. But I think that that narrative is probably held by a large percentage of Democrats as well. You know, who are living in cities and have sort of noticed that there's a lot of crime. Yeah, I think I do agree. That's going to be very, that's going to be very difficult. I mean, at the same time, I don't really see the people who started those type, you know, like the abolitionists and the defund uh, organizers who at this point have a big networks through the summer, right? Um, I don't see them changing their focus, nor do I think they should, right? I don't see them moving on to something else because it's more. Mm, um, yeah because it's more convenient or easier to win. It does seem like, yeah, abolitionism has taken on, like it's, it's it kind of achieved a certain status last summer where a lot of people like just point to it as a thing that they're part of. It's part of their identity, part of their yeah. political identity. And the other thing is a lot of the protesters were young, like younger than us, right? And right. so I think part of what remains to be seen is like, will this later on shape um, you know, the next five, 10 years of, uh, of, of, of political, I don't know, attitude in this country, right? Like, like a lot of people who participated were like in college or just after college. And it might, we might turn out like later on, like this whole generation was shaped by the summer. There's these, these years around this summer, um, in ways that we can't see yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. my hope. You know, my, my thought so. is always, I've, I've said it on the show many times, but, you know, bears repeating. It's just that I think that the effects of this stuff, like because so much of this type of activism is interpersonal and on a hyper-local level, that it's hard to take a 30,000-foot view from it because if you take a 30,000-foot view from it, then yeah, you know, there aren't that many protests anymore, right? Like it has dissipated. But I do think that in terms of radicalizing people, you know, who will go on and make decisions and make connections and fight for other things. And I don't think that that can necessarily be discounted at all. Yeah. And I think that um, that you do see the effects of it in, you know, the fight at Amazon. You know, I saw like, mm-hmm. Dan- I saw Danny Glover speak twice, I think, in the Bay Area because he lives in San Francisco during the summer. And then you see him and of course he would have been there anyway because he appears to be the best human being of all time. <laughs> but, you know, then he's in, then he's in, in Alabama and then people see the sort of continuation of that fight, right? It is about both things. And I think there's a lot of people who think that way now and much more than they were in the 
than they were in the past. So yeah. I don't know. I'm not willing to just say like, oh, well, you know, what was that all for? Like, did we cause so much unrest, you know, that no, is going to scare not. centrist Dems? Like, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't really see that. I do think it, you know, I don't know. Maybe it scared some Asians, but <laughs> that was inevitable. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think, think also a lot of Latinos, but like, you know, I don't, I think that. Oh, uh, you think so? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I think that it definitely emboldened the type of silent majority type of politics around law and order that are, you know, that have been powerful in the past. Right. But um, I don't think that that means that people shouldn't do these things. Right. I just think that yeah. they should be aware that that is a risk. It freaked out those people. But then, yeah, the, the countervailing part is what you guys were articulating in terms of people adopting abolitionism as a kind of overarching ideology, which I think, to, I guess, Tommy Craig's also talked to us about that, about how he sort of thought maybe that's yeah. the kind of new 99% sort of thing. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's thinking about that. Like I was like, just looking at how Miriam Kappa's new book is like on the bestseller list. And, you know, mm. there's just, it's interesting. Like people are reading and thinking about all this stuff and, um, yeah, I mean, I think like there, there's, it's going to be harder for the Biden types to sell. You can't do a 94 crime bill anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. And even like here, I would say like, you know, where I live, like you can see it locally as well, like the effects of it, which is like, we just passed this sort of, you know, everyone, the New York Times wrote about it. Everybody sort of wrote about it. We passed this initiative to end single family zoning in the city of That's Berkeley. That's right. And, you know, it's a big deal, even Congrats. though, it's, you know, it's not necessarily like something that has teeth to it yet. It's sort of like a we are going to do this over the next three years. It's like kind of like a yeah. uh, like a like a IOU or something like that or like a reminder note. Like, hey, let's, <laughs> get, let's get this done. It's like Google but, Tasks. Yeah. Um, Google I don't tests. think that that happens without sort of the idea that there is, you know, in a city that is perhaps the most politically intimidation run city in the world, or you're just, <laughs> at least in the country, you're like, you better not, you know, show your actual politics here. Um, the fact that that passed unanimously and had widespread support, I do think is a legacy of, you know, people sort of becoming more progressive about a lot of things, you know, starting to think outside of their own property value, for example. You know, and 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 getting with uh, you know, listening to people who are basically saying that there's no housing in the city that is affordable and that we need to we need to, like, allow people to not just have these sort of palatial places, right, where they have like uh, we need to have we need to increase the amount of housing. Now, you can have a separate conversation about whether or not that's going to all be luxury housing and whether or not YIMBYism is just a form of, you know, is only helping developers or whatever. But that's mm -hmm. not how it was that's not how it was couched here, right? It was couched as a progressive measure that would end a lot of housing discrimination in the city. And that's why people were excited about it. And the people who would have opposed it, I mean, I, there used to be a city councilwoman who opposed it based on you know the terms that I described before, which was just that like, it's gonna actually lead to more gentrification. I see. But the actual you know big response to it used to just be from homeowners who were wealthy, right? And those people all just kind of got out of the way. Hmm. on this one mm -hmm. i don't know i think that's a positive that's yeah. really that you can track back yeah it does feel uh, like we're in this um transitional moment um uh, just to like i don't know wrap up all of our topics like i don't really know what's going to happen next but i do feel like yeah. there are signs that some we're, we're like at the end of one era at the beginning of a new one 
it's probably been that way for a few years anyway, but now it seems like, I, like, I feel like society, right? Like as a whole has been more progressive than politicians for a few years at this point. Um, and now it just seems like the Democrats are finally acknowledging it um, yeah. or central yeah. or whatever, like mainstream politicians are finally acknowledging it. Um, but we don't know, like still like most of the party is still like the same people who a few years ago were totally against a lot of this stuff. So it's, you know, who knows? Um, maybe the, but maybe like the young Buddha judges and the sort of the young centrists are going to be actually more on board with this than we think. Yeah. Pete wants to like, you know, he just wants to build mass rail everywhere. Oh, is, he, is that what he's talking about? <laughs> yeah. Is yeah, it because it's like in Finland or something? Or? I don't know. <laughs> it's like you're, you're a rail I'm very everywhere. Supportive of that. <laughs> it's all stuff that I'm all for. Yeah. 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 yeah put in incredible. more bike lanes, you know, get rid of these cars everywhere you know <laughs> let me take a train to you know palo alto or wherever yeah you know, oh yeah, yeah, yeah train to la or something like that like it's uh yeah, that'd be so yeah incredible. that's sort of his his thing um he's also you know he's another big transportation secretary of course he's going to try and make it like the biggest transportation secretary of all time we'll see how much he gets done but i don't know i i think that uh it would be remiss to sort of just say that, you know, the counter, and I guess it is sort of the responsibility of the left and of people who are involved in activist protest spaces to actually sort of claim the credit here when the credit is warranted. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do, right? Because every other publication, every mainstream sort of outlet is going to give the credit to the politicians. Um, and then people are like, yeah, well, then you'll have people tweeting at me all the time saying like, Name one thing that a protest has ever gotten accomplished. I'm just like, okay, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the next really day, have, you have to have yeah. some huge outcome. <laughs> I don't have time for these types of conversations. Okay, do we have anything else we want to talk about here? No. All right, I, the, I feel like we did a good domestic I... episode after like a string of international ones. Yeah, I, I do think like the two things I'm thinking a lot about, I don't know about you guys, they're like housing because the shoe's going to drop, right? in the couple, next couple months. So to me, that's like the huge, just like daily life thing that's just going to explode. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Um, and you know, some of the, right. Like that's like a state and city type of and County type of government issue, right. In terms of evictions and. Yeah. I think at a policy level, but I just mean like, like, are we going to see a wave of just like hundreds of thousands of people who are like, I owe $9,000. Uh And I'm going to be homeless. Like, I don't, you know, and then what will happen from that? Yeah. And I think also like the immigrant rights movement, I'm thinking a lot about, about, are we going to actually get like basically an amnesty program under Biden? You know, I think that would, that would be huge. Um, What does he signal so far? I think people are feeling somewhat optimistic. Yeah. That's what it seems like to me too. You know, like getting a kind of Reaganite be... forgiveness thing. <laughs> It'll be he wants to be big on immigration too, I think. Right? Yeah. He wants that to be part of basically everything that Trump. Exactly. Did. Just to distinguish. Just himself. Do the opposite right. Maybe, I mean, maybe he like, you know, read your article or listens to the podcast and he knows that the Democrats are at risk of losing immigrants. So <laughs> to win over the Asians. Now. <laughs> I don't know if letting in more immigrants is necessarily. That's true. Convince that might actually hurt him. Yeah. At the same time, I was having this conversation with somebody who I think is very smart. And she was saying those people that are like, uh, you know, let's say specifically like the Chinese people who are agitating against affirmative action, those people are never going to be won back by the democratic party. 
they're going to be Republicans forever, and you should just forget about probably, it. Probably, yeah. I think that's probably true. They're kids, um, though. Yeah, their kids might go Democrat. Their kids are the ones that are interesting, mm-hmm. right? And um, their kids are, yeah, you know, right now. Uh, yeah, they're on, sure they're on the fence. Are, are win- they're winnable in a lot of ways. Because they're, they're, they're going to places where everyone around them is going to be yeah. basically an AOC stan. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe you could peer pressure them into not not joining the right especially whatever sort of militant right that comes out of yeah. uh these you know this these this i don't even know what to call it at this point like these attacks right yeah who's the uh, east asian aoc is it like ron kim at this point yeah or he's jane the most kim? yeah ron kim jane kim y'all ain't know yeah. right. are the east asians right <laughs> but yeah, ron is ron now kim. like a national figure because of Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo yeah. right? Interesting. Oh my I know. I know. I I only have like totally race essentialized thoughts about Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you really should not put Koreans in a point, paint them in a corner. You know, it's like they will blow themselves up just to spite you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, like you should not. Like maybe like. Yeah, this Italian guy and this Korean guy just, and they cross just, each other. I just want to push them in a corner because they're gonna they're gonna do everything in their power to make sure that like, you know, you suffer as much as them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that's a good place to end uh, on, a, you know, on a racist note um about about Ron Kim, who I you know, I think what he's done is totally heroic and admirable and you know it was something that everybody was quiet about, which is that Cuomo's letting all these old people die and yeah, in, in nursing homes and he's getting all this credit and doing all these stupid press conferences. And I think, you know, I think he's, he and a lot of people swung the, the opinion about that issue. Right. And then, yeah. you know, a lot of brave women swung the issue about, yeah. about oh his, you know, about his sexual harassment and him just being a creep. So uh yeah hopefully by the next time we record he will no longer be the governor <laughs> oh my gosh of, yeah he'll no longer be the governor of new york because uh that guy is terrible um all right on that note uh thanks for listening to our show uh we do this every week sometimes we do it twice a week for our patreon subscribers if you want to support the show um and you haven't already it is at patreon.com slash pod. Uh, there are a lot of different, there are three different tiers to sign up. You get access to bonus episodes, but you also get, um, and I think at this point we can safely say that this is the most exciting thing that we've offered, right? There is a very lively Discord server that, you know, that our listeners have conversations all day on from topics ranging from subway placement ads and Korean dramas to <laughs> there's an organizing channel for people to get involved, you know, uh, locally with each other, because a lot of people do live in similar areas, right? It's not a surprise, like Asians tend to live in cities on the coast or in the Midwest. There are, you know, the people in the Midwest who have met each other. Conversations about music, there's conversations about leftist politics, there's, you know, Andy did like a Marx reading yeah. <laughs> uh, class. They organized which... it on their own. I, I, <laughs> I just applaud them for doing it. Yeah, which, uh, you know, um, seems amazing i was just like andy you're doing like a marx reading no. with the with the people in our <laughs> no no no, no. So this you, is this is a grassroots thing yeah 
if you want Andy's uh, tutelage on on Marx, which is you know his knowledge is considerable, then it's also a bonus. So yeah, please sign up and support the show. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, you can either reach out to us there, or you can reach us to us on Twitter. It's at ttsgpod, or you can always email at us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail. Dot com. Um, yeah, I will talk to both of you next week, I think. And until then, thanks for listening to the show.